With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Just a quick note before we get started. This episode contains disturbing content, including discussions of suicide. Take care while listening. All right. It's 6.30 on a Wednesday night. It's the late 1970s, so you've probably got some long, feathered hair. It looks great, actually. I think it's really working for you. We're standing in a hotel ballroom with a hundred other strangers. Everybody's milling around, a little awkward, a little nervous. This is the first day in LifeSpring's basic seminar. I hope you're ready to change your life. But don't just stand there. Put your name tag on and take a seat. The chairs are all lined up in perfect rows like we're seeing community theater or a terrible TED Talk. They're facing a low stage in the front of the room where the trainer sits. There he is, right there. Let's call him Bruce. <coughs> Bruce is balanced on one of those tall director's chairs. There are two easels with paper and markers on stage with him. Those grinning people behind us are LifeSpring volunteers here to support Bruce through the five-day seminar. Like my parents did at one point. Like I did, too. But wait, Bruce is waving us forward. He says, come on up and fill the front rows first. Say it, Bruce. Come on up. Fill the front rows first. Great. Let's get started. The first night of LifeSpring's basic seminar is all about making sure you're ready to step up and do the work. It's Wednesday, 7 p.m. Bruce, the trainer, might start off with something like this. All you have is your word. All you have is your integrity. If you make an agreement to me, to the other participants, to be on time and to participate fully and to not use drugs or drink for the course of the seminar, and then you break that agreement, what are you saying about the value of your integrity? This is about you. This is about the rest of your life. What do you want to create? It's simple. If you're not here to do the work, then it isn't going to work. If you're in- Okay, all right, we got it. Thanks, Bruce. Wednesday night ends with a process called the mingle. You walk around the ballroom, and one by one, you stop in front of the other participants. You look deep into their eyes, they stare back into yours, and you say one of four phrases. Either, I trust you, or I'm not sure I trust you, or I don't trust you, or just, I don't know what to say. This one's all about honesty about how honest you are with yourself, how willing you are to be honest with others, but it's also about the judgments you place on other people and how wrong they can be. Because here we are, you and me. You know, we're standing in front of each other in this ballroom. Now it's 11 p.m. on Wednesday night, and I'm looking into your eyes, and for some reason, something inside me says, I can't trust this person. And that's what I tell you. Or maybe I don't. Maybe I lie to avoid hurting your feelings. But here's the thing. When we both walk out of here in four days... You will know every deep and dark crevice of my heart, and I'll know every deep and dark crevice of yours, and nobody outside of this room will ever know me like you're about to, and that's trust. At least, that's the idea. Let's keep going. Now it's Thursday night and you're back in the ballroom. You've pulled a chair in front of a partner for an exercise about personal responsibility. You're going to tell them a story where you felt like a victim. You bare your soul, you really lean into it, nice and whiny, all the ways you were wronged, blow by blow. But when you're done, Bruce tells you to start from the beginning again. This time, tell the story like you were responsible for everything that happened. 
This time, maybe you start to notice, huh, I did play a role in that. And maybe I have the power to make sure it doesn't happen again. Maybe life isn't something that happens to you. It's something that happens from you. Fast forward to Friday at 7.30. Bruce is leading you through a closed eye process. You're picturing yourself in a giant junkyard. And as you look around, you realize each piece of garbage in the junkyard is actually a broken agreement from your past. Every time a parent lied to you, every broken promise from your spouse, it all added a little more trash. But it goes both ways. Every time you broke an agreement, every time you lied, it also added more to the pile. And now here we are standing in a sea of shit. Well, how much more trash do you want to add to your junkyard? How much more trash will you dump into somebody else's? Now it's 9 p.m. Friday. Bruce is splitting you into two teams for something called the Red-Black Game. The point of the red-black game is to win. The point of the red-black game is to accumulate the maximum number of positive points. The rules are complicated. The point is to win, positive points, it barely makes sense. So you go off with your team and you work out a strategy. A strategy to win, to accumulate the maximum number of positive points, whatever. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter. The game doesn't matter, it's just a stupid game. The only thing that matters is how you play it. Because how you play the red-black game is how you're living your life. Do you shout at your teammates and bully them into agreeing to your plan? Do you cross your arms when they won't listen and silently stew in the corner? Do you just fade back and follow somebody else's lead? Well, where else in your life do you use anger to get what you want? How often do you find yourself wallowing in resentment? How much of your life have you wasted passively sitting back and just doing what you're told? How you do one thing is how you do everything. How you play the red-black game is how you're living your life, and the only person responsible for it is you! Well, that's it for Friday. Now, go get some sleep and be back here in 10 hours, ready to share. Saturday is the big climax. It lasts all day and late into the night. We do the mom-dad dyad, where we tell people posing as our parents all the things we've never told them before. We go deep. We break down. By the end of the day, we're standing in two parallel lines facing each other, hugging and crying in each other's arms. It's hard to remember that just a few days ago, we were all strangers in this room. Sunday's the conclusion, the day to tie up loose ends, to celebrate how far we've come. Your family and friends arrive in the evening for your life spring graduation. You introduce me to them. They're nice. I really liked your brother-in-law. There's music and dancing and balloons and flowers and laughter and maybe a few more tears. And then that's it. Congratulations. You're a life spring graduate. Well, a graduate of the first level, at least. If you're brave enough to keep doing the work that you started this weekend, Bruce is right over there with a clipboard to sign you up for the advanced course. It's all a matter of how committed you are to your growth. You're committed, right? I thought so. Now, will that be cash or check? So that seminar you just went through? That was LifeSpring's basic training. It was John Hanley's masterpiece. It turned hundreds of thousands of people into die-hard LifeSpring believers and made John Hanley a multi-millionaire in the process. The seminar could break you open and transform your life in less than a week. But the thing that made it so powerful also made it dangerous. David Priddle took that same seminar. 15 hours later, he killed himself. And just a few months after that, another LifeSpring graduate wound up dead. She couldn't breathe. She couldn't breathe. They murdered more than my aunt. I mean, they murdered my mother. You know, I, I really believe that. I, I, before Gail died, my mom used to have this smile that... Uh, used to light up the, the, the whole world. I, I've never seen her smile like that since.
This is Good Cult, an original podcast from Cast Media. I'm River Donahue. Over these six episodes, I'm investigating the controversial seminars that defined my childhood and the man who created them, a convicted felon turned new age guru named John Hanley. But this isn't just a story about the past. By the end of our time together, I'll take you inside a seminar room where lives are still being changed and ruined to this day. You're listening to episode three. This is about the rest of your life. All you have is your word. All you have is your integrity. And if you make a promise to me, to the other participants, to rate, review, and subscribe to Good Cult and Apple Podcasts, and then you break that promise, what are you saying about the value of your word? What are you saying about the value of your integrity? This is about you. Well, actually, it's about me. It's about you rating, reviewing, and subscribing to Good Cult and Apple Podcasts for me. Now, a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. All right, look. Making this podcast has been emotionally intense for me in a way that I didn't expect. Truly, it's forced me to take a hard look at all the relationships in my life, with my family, with my partner, with myself. It's been a really hard year. You know, there have been a couple times these past months, probably more than I'd like to admit, where I got overwhelmed and I just kind of shut down. You know, where I felt like there were too many problems, too many issues, too much of everything. And I get stuck in this negative loop and just spin and spin and spin and spin and... Every time I did, you know, my therapist was there to help me out of that stuck point, to get my brain out of problems and into solutions. I really don't think I would have finished the podcast you're listening to right now without therapy. I'd still be rewriting episode one and just spinning out completely. So if you've been thinking about giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is the perfect place to start. You know, there are lots of different kinds of therapy, lots of different kinds of therapists. And the thing I like most about BetterHelp is that they let you switch therapists at any time. You know, it's important to find a therapist that feels like the right fit for you, and BetterHelp gets that. So when you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com slash GoodCult today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash GoodCult. I'm a terrible eater. You know, I'm not picky or anything. I like food. I'm a living and breathing human being with a body that needs nutrients or whatever. But when I get busy, Food is always the first thing that goes to the bottom of my priorities list. I always wind up skipping meals, and then by the time I take a break to eat, I'm so ravenously hungry that I just gobble up whatever garbage I can find. But a meal like that doesn't actually give my body what it needs, so I just wind up hungry again right away. You know, it's a terrible cycle. But when I first tried Splendid Spoon, it was like every cell in my body stood up and cheered in unison, Osmosis Jones style. Because Splendid Spoon sends quick and easy meals straight to my door. I have no excuse not to eat. They have a huge variety of breakfast smoothies, lunch bowls, noodles, soups, and everything's plant-based, gluten-free, GMO-free. It's just veggies and whole grains and healthy fats. You know, all the stuff that makes my body happy and keeps me going no matter how busy I am. And most importantly, it's good. You know, right now I'm really into their brown rice taco bowl. It's got this smoky flavor thing going on that I really like. Honestly, I wish they would send it to me in big five-gallon tubs because I'd feast on it for days. But until that happens, fuel up for your own busy day with Splendid Spoon. Get started today and get $120 off your first three boxes at SplendidSpoon.com slash GoodCult. That's $120 off at SplendidSpoon.com slash GoodCult. Now let's get back to the show. LifeSpring opened its first office in late 1973 on Union Street in San Francisco. 
It was in a quaint colonial-style building with ivy creeping up its side. Etched into a wooden sign above the entrance was the word Lifespring, along with a logo of what looked like a bird taking flight. But it took Hanley years to get his company off the ground. For the first few years, Lifespring struggled. Hanley hadn't managed to perfect the trainings yet, but he kept tinkering. One day, he convinced a psychologist named John Enright to come try out a Lifespring seminar. Enright had studied under Fritz Perls, an experimental therapy pioneer whose work laid the foundation for just about everything Hanley wanted to do. But Enright thought that Lifespring was terrible. So Hanley asked Enright what the seminars needed, how he could put a little more power behind them. And Enright had some advice. Here's how Hanley explained it in his memoir, quote, Enright was very clear about the difference between reading a menu and eating a meal. You can talk about a concept all day long, but unless people actually live it, they're not going to get it. Hanley realized that Lifespring couldn't just talk to people about their emotions. The seminars needed to throw trainees into situations that forced them to confront their feelings head on. So Hanley hired Enright to help him take things to the next level. And it worked. By 1977, the seminars had become something special something powerful. I did the life spring training, the new life spring training. And when I did it, it was just, it was amazing. This is Betty Spruill. Betty ran seminars and trained trainers alongside Hanley. Eventually, she became LifeSpring's executive vice president. But at first, she was just another happy LifeSpring graduate. The seminars that opened Betty's mind in the late 70s were nearly identical to the ones that hooked my parents in 1984, and then hooked me almost two decades later. But this was more than just an inside. It was about how people lived, worked together, coordinated together, how people were with each other. And so I did the training, and I loved it. All three levels. The first level of LifeSpring's seminar program was called The Basic. You know how that one worked. You just took it. But the advanced course is where things got really serious. Well, it's, you know, the second level of LifeSpring got very confronted. And some people took it over the top. In, in what way? You know, throwing water on people. Uh, a lot of profanity. I used some myself when I was a trainer. If you made it through the basic seminar and were coming back for more, you had to be ready to do the intense work. The stuff Hanley had pulled straight from LDI. Well, without the caskets or the cages or the waterboarding. It was a wake up. And the principles were based on, in terms of the second level course, in life straight, you are not your image. So if you're not your image, then who are you? John Hanley was the only person who ran the advanced course in the early years of LifeSpring. In his book, Hanley said he started each seminar like this, quote, well, actually, let's have Bruce read it. Bruce? You're here trying to convince me that your life works perfectly well, when I know perfectly well it doesn't. I know there's something missing in your life that maybe you don't even know. And my strategy is that in the next five days, you will get what's missing and get it so profoundly it will be available to you for the rest of your life. That final course, the leadership program, was supposed to help you take what you've learned inside the seminar room and bring it out into the real world. It was a three-month program. Once a month, you'd meet with your trainer and the other participants to make sure you were staying on track, staying accountable to yourself. And by the end of the leadership program, you had to overcome your greatest fear. 
If you were scared of heights, maybe you went skydiving. If you were claustrophobic, maybe you went spelunking. The idea was that if you could get over what you were most afraid of, you could get over anything. You could live up to your full potential. You could conquer your own mind. That last program was free for graduates of the advanced course. All you had to do was get five new people to sign up for the basic. Convincing multiple people to shell out hundreds of dollars for a seminar in a weird hotel ballroom, or as LifeSpring called it, enrolling them, wasn't as hard as it might sound. By the end of the 1970s, LifeSpring had exploded in popularity. Suddenly, all the seminars were full. Basic trainings that used to top out at 50 people swelled to 100, 200, sometimes 300 people per seminar. I started to know that it was touching people in places where people wanted it to be touched. To deal with the surge, Hanley started opening LifeSpring offices all across the country. How established was it at the point when you came in? Did they have multiple offices? Was it just the San Francisco office? They had San Francisco, Orange County, California, Portland, Oregon, Seattle, Washington. At one point in time, LifeSpring had about 30 centers here in the United States. The seminars were powerful. We've already covered that. But the real key to LifeSpring's success was John Hanley himself. John Hanley had like a bit of a guru-like presence. This is Karen. Her parents helped run LifeSpring's Philadelphia office. Karen had an inside look at LifeSpring in the 1970s and 80s, and to John Hanley. She can still remember how everything would change the minute Hanley walked into a room. He was like a rock star. He was, you know, a very attractive man, sort of considered like the sort of LifeSpring celebrity. There was something about John Hanley that just drew people to him. To Karen, it felt like he was leading some kind of revolution. We were coming out of the 70s. The 70s were incredibly dark times. Gas crisis, you know, energy issues, like um, hostage situations, the Carter administration. Like, my parents talk about that decade as like one of the worst in history in terms of living through it. And so here you are, you start the 80s and things are like bedazzled. <laughs> And John Hanley walks in and he's so successful and savvy and smart. And he doesn't look like their parents. He looks like the future they want to be a part of. In 1979, a young woman in Seattle decided to see if John Hanley's seminars were really as amazing as everybody said. She was 27. She'd built a successful life for herself as a model. She made appearances on Johnny Carson and hung out with A-list actors like Steve McQueen and James Garner. But she wanted to pivot to a career in real estate. Her boyfriend at the time thought that LifeSpring might give her the boost of confidence she needed to make that transition, to kickstart her new career. So that April, the woman entered LifeSpring's basic training. Her name was Gail Rennick. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So you've probably already heard about Cast's new investigative true crime podcast, Lost in Panama. But if you haven't caught up yet, 
Now's the time, because new evidence and testimony has been uncovered in the more recent episodes that's shining a whole new light on the case. The first four episodes of Lost in Panama laid out everything already known about the two young women who went missing, including deep dives into the mysterious photos, the suspicious tour guide, and the remains. But episode five is where the investigation launches into a whole new direction. The Lost in Panama team meets a woman who says that the same men who killed her son are responsible for Chris and Lizanne's deaths. The woman lays out what she believes happened and how the women were abducted and killed. And amazingly, it all adds up. The pieces start to fit together and finally make sense. So as time's running out, the Lost in Panama team takes this major breakthrough and races to push the Panamanian government to admit that there's more going on here than meets the eye. The officials need to reopen the case and take a serious look at this new evidence. So the families affected can finally get closure. But will they do it? If you want to find out, you can listen to all episodes of Lost in Panama right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Gail was the center of uh, the attention because she had the guts to be funny and not really care what anybody thought. She would do things that none of the rest of us would do. She could get away with anything because she laughed it off. She was always laughing. This is Gail Rennick's sister, Cindy. Growing up in San Diego, Gail and Cindy were inseparable. We were almost like twins. We were buddies. We were great friends. She was my dad's favorite by far. I mean, he just loved her personality. I mean, they were the best buddies. And, um, and he, she always made him laugh. Gail was younger than Cindy, but listening to Cindy talk about her now, it sounds like she always looked up to Gail. Um, she was a model. She was at the photographer's an awful lot, doing a lot of traveling, having dinners. She was very busy. I'm looking beautiful. Gail got married, but it didn't last long. The way Cindy explained it, Gail was just moving too fast to be tied down. She got divorced, then moved up to Seattle, where she planned to get into real estate. That's where she first heard about LifeSpring. It was the beginning of 1979. She always wanted to better herself. That's what it was all about. Yeah, she wanted to be the best. She had the personality to do it, too. Actually, if I remember right, her boyfriend paid for it. And uh, because he took it. And he thought it'd be great for her. But it wasn't. No one in Gail's family knows exactly what happened to her in that basic seminar. But in 1980... A LifeSpring trainee who was in the room that day sat down for an interview with ABC. Remember the dyads? How LifeSpring would split participants into pairs and have them turn their chairs toward each other and do an exercise? Well, Terry Hackett was Gail's dyad partner. She was sitting right across from Gail on April 29th, 1979, when Gail started gasping for air. Terry said, quote, She was having a great difficulty breathing. It was that heavy, asthmatic type of wheezing, and then she dropped down and put her head between her legs to kind of get her breath again and come back up, and she just breathed like that for an hour. Gail was having an asthma attack, but LifeSpring had checked her inhaler at the door. It was company policy, no alcohol, tobacco, or medication during the seminar, not even prescriptions. When LifeSpring's trainer, a guy named Bill Dean, came by to check on her, Terry said something was seriously wrong with Gail. Here's what Terry told ABC, quote, Bill Dean came by and he said, why aren't you girls doing your dyad? I said, Bill, she's having a terrific asthma attack and I think she needs help. And he just said, Gail, what's causing this attack? And then he turned around and walked away. Lifespring has a belief 
that a lot of this is mind over matter, that you can conquer it without the assistance of extraneous support. This is Miles Stanislaw, an attorney who litigated multiple cases against LifeSpring in the 70s and 80s. The LifeSpring theory is that it's a crutch and they do everything they can to discourage you from using your crutch, whatever it might be, whether it's aspirin for a headache or an inhaler for asthma. Eventually, Bill Dean and two LifeSpring employees walked Gail out of the seminar room and into the front office. Here's Gail's sister, Cindy, again. She was in there, and they they proceeded to uh, really get down on her, really, really get get intense with her and everything, and she kept asking for her medicine. And they said, you don't need your medicine. You can work your way out of this. Well, next thing you know, they push her out the door with her shoes and her purse in her hand. Gail Rennick walked out into the night alone. She was struggling for air. She stumbled across the street to a restaurant looking for help. And then she collapsed. She couldn't breathe. She couldn't breathe. Gail was rushed to Harborview Hospital in downtown Seattle in an ambulance. Cindy heard about what had happened early the next morning. I was asleep in bed and my kids were getting ready to go to school. My husband was getting ready to send them off. Um, He came in and he said, Cindy, um, you need to answer the phone. I darn near collapsed. I was just beside myself. I told him, I, I've got to go to Seattle. i got to go now. I remember the phone call. This is Cindy's son, Scott. He was seven when all this happened. Now, I remember hearing uh, something hit the side of the wall. It was my mother. It was a scream I'll never forget. Cindy flew up to Seattle as quickly as she could and met her parents in Gail's hospital room. Her sister was in a coma. And I could tell by looking at her, she was really gone. She was hooked up to everything, but she was, you can tell. You can tell. I've seen a few of this, a few people like this. And um, I was, I was sick, sick. And then watching my father was a horrible, horrible experience. The pain in his face was incredible. My mother was a mess, but my father was gone. He was just in another world. But Cindy and her family weren't alone in Gail's hospital room. There were other people there, too. People Cindy didn't recognize. Yeah, all of a sudden I thought, these people do not know my sister at all. And what are you doing here? Where did you meet her? They all said, oh, Lifespring. We all did Lifespring together. I said, well, where were you when she needed help? You're no friend. And I told my dad, I went, these people are going to go. They're going to go, and they're going to go now. And I told him to get out, and Dad said, do what she says. After five days at her bedside, Cindy and her family made the decision to take Gail off of life support. She died on May 4th, 1979. She was 27. In his memoir, John Hanley called Gail's death an unfortunate incident. He wrote that LifeSpring, quote, had always taken great care to make sure that our courses were safe. He also mentioned a Seattle police captain who purportedly investigated Gail's death and said, quote, we found insufficient evidence to establish any direct cause between LifeSpring and her death. We could not find anything in our investigation to indicate a crime. 
Hanley wrote that the statement appeared in an article in a Marin County newspaper published in 1980. I spent weeks looking for that story, but I never managed to find it. No one at Lifespring was charged in connection with Gail's death, but Scott, Gail's nephew, still blames them for what happened to her. That they murdered more than my aunt. I mean, they murdered my mother. You know, I, I really believe that. I, I, before Gail died, my mom used to have this smile that uh, that my nephew has and uh, my son has, and it just she walks into a room and that smile just used to light up the the, the whole world. I, I've never seen her smile like that since. I mean, it. it uh, I mean, I think my mom has just existed since Gail died. People have said a lot of negative things to me about these seminars over the years. Most of them I can understand. They're weird, they're culty, they prey on your emotions to financially exploit you and keep you coming back for more. For the most part, I just shrugged it all off. I'd never thought that these seminars could actually be dangerous or deadly. But what happened to Gail Rennick isn't something I can just brush aside. The scene in that seminar room the moments leading up to Gail's death, all of that feels uncomfortably familiar to me. Now, I don't know Gail's trainer, Bill Dean, but in another seminar, in another city, in another time, that could just as easily have been one of my parents' friends. The volunteers who walked Gail out of the seminar room, that could have been my mom, or my dad, or me. I can't help but wonder how I might have handled that situation, what I might have done differently. Would I have stood up and said something? Would I have insisted that we give Gail her inhaler, that we stop the training, that somebody had to call an ambulance for her right away? Or would I have just done what the trainer told me to? I know what I want my answer to be, but I don't know if it's true. This happened on April 29th. They pronounced her dead uh, May 4th. Every single year since she died, between April 29th and May 4th, I remember. Um, usually I go away or go on a trip or something because I don't want to, I don't want to go through it again. Um, no, I've never forgotten. Never. Her murder was, it tore my family apart. It ruined everything. I mean, my mom and, and Gail were more than sisters, you know. It it broke my mother. It absolutely broke her. You question, um, is there really a heaven? Are they really dead? Is there spirit? You just question everything. So So then you depend on, like... Well, she'll come to me in my dreams and stuff, or maybe she'll be a ghost or something. I've never heard from anybody that I know. Never. But I want to believe. I want to believe. You could argue, like John Hanley has, that what happened to Gail Rennick was a fluke. An isolated incident that wasn't caused by Lifespring. It just happened to take place during one of its seminars. But Gail Rennick wasn't the only person who allegedly died at Lifespring's hands. And it doesn't stop with David Priddle either. As Lifespring reached its peak in the 1980s, 
the casualties just kept piling up. You're listening to Good Cult, an original podcast from Cast Media. I'm River Donahue. Next time, we'll dig into the mountain of lawsuits filed against Lifespring in the 1980s and meet the journalist who finally brought John Hanley's empire crumbling down. Good Cult is written by me, River Donahue, with help from Drew Schwartz. It's executive produced by Colin Thompson and produced by me and Drew with a last-minute assist from Trey Schiltz. Good Cult was edited by Anton Doty and Jordan Cantor and mixed by Anton. The original score was composed by Spencer Fox and Sam Hendricks. Robert Beatty made our cover art and Katie Way fact-checked for us. Legal review by Ted Curtis. Special thanks this episode to Sarah Connor at San Diego State University and to Bruce. Good Cult is a cast original production. It's River. Um, it's two in the morning. I just woke up in a cold sweat. My sheets are soaked. It's really gross. Um, I'm worried that this podcast isn't any good. Um, should I get up and start rewriting? Should I drive to the studio right now and just re-record the whole opening again? I don't know. Maybe if you could just do me a solid and rate, review, and subscribe to Good Cult and Apple Podcasts, then... I could finally get a good night's sleep. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.